Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit this program to bring you a special bulletin. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. Five. Check for sound. Four. It's showtime. Three. Let's two, go. One. Welcome to the Pro Audio Suite, a podcast for audio and voiceover professionals. Don't forget to check us out on our Facebook, the Pro Audio Suite Podcast. Now let's get on with the show. From Los Angeles, George Witham. From Chicago, Robert Marshall. From Sydney, Australia, Robbo. And from sunny Melbourne, Andrew Peters. This is the Pro Audio Suite. Welcome to a special Pro Audio Suite. Uh, This week, it's the four of us, but we've got an interview that we've dug up from the archives, which is an interview with Richard Lush, who was one of the engineers who worked at EMI in London with the Beatles. In fact, he started back in the mid-60s, or 64, I think, was his uh, start date, and then ended up working with John Lennon before moving to Australia. Now... I reckon, Robert, because you're a bit of a, uh, you like a bit of the Brit pop from the 80s, you'd be a bit of a Beatles guy. I, the, if you had to put me on a desert island, it'd probably be the Beatles, but it'd be a toss-up between Beatles and Floyd. It'd be Beatles or Floyd if, if I could only have one. Like, I don't know, what would it be? It'd be like, oh man, Revolver Pink or Floyd maybe doing Rubber the Soul. Maybe? <laughs> yeah. Maybe, there you go. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, Revolver. Uh, I've got to say, the two my two favorites are Revolver and um, Rubber Soul. Rubber Soul. Oh, those are the best. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I those to me are the best. Like you know, Sergeant Pepper and th- those are great. But there's just something about the moment in time that Revolver happened and Rubber Soul happened, which was like the inflection of their careers that just makes them super special. Can I can I make a, a startling confession here? While I appreciate the cleverness of their music, I'm not a huge fan. I, really? No, I, I appreciate I appreciate the 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 creativity and everything else that went into their music, but I don't. The Beatles is one act that I don't sit down. I, I don't think I even own an album. I went crazy digging up stuff like the Off White album and all the outtakes and the whole thing where yeah. you can hear John Lennon construct Strawberry Fields. Oh, I don't know. To me, the Beatles are amazing for a number of reasons. Compositionally, their their melodies and chord progressions are great. Performers, they're great performers. And then you've just got the production, which while in today's standards is like, okay, not that great. But when you put it in historical context, it's monumental, you know? It's just like it's got all three, I think. I don't doubt I, I don't disagree with any of that, but it's just I don't know, it's just never struck a chord with me. It's never made me want to go, wow, I want to hear that again or you know, I'm going to read a book, I'll put a Beatles record on. It's just never done that for me. Don't know why. Do you know the funny thing is that, because I, I, I'm the oldest person here, I grew up um, in the UK when the Beatles kicked off. Um, and I can remember going home to watch the Beatles on TV for the first time. Um, and I must admit, I've got two older brothers. One was like into the mod thing and the Beatles and the other one was into the Rolling Stones and all that kind of stuff. I went the Rolling Stones route, I must admit. I, I just never really got the Beatles. And it took me probably only until the last maybe 15 years that it finally clicked. But now I listen to it and think how incredibly they were recorded. 
I mean, you listen to Rubber Soul or Revolver, are those records? And they're working. And what a are they working? Four track. Four track. Yeah, four track. Yeah. Four track. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time that that Motown was working on eight tracks, Beatles are working on four tracks. Yeah. And fidelity and, was pretty startlingly different. I mean, the yeah. Beatles I mean, granted, it's like a one inch four track. I mean, talk about yeah. awesome. Do you know why I think that was though with the Beatles? Um, I, because the EMI was anal historically a, a, a stra- well, a, it was a studio that recorded classical, classical music. Yes. So there was a whole, you're quite right, they were anal. So, you know, everything was by the book. Because EMI was so anal, there's books and you can just see, like they documented all the setups because whenever they came in, this was the setup for the Beatles. Like, we're going to put this mic here again. And it was all very repeatable because they were so scientific about it. So it's, you know, like other things, you're like, who, who knows how they did those things and people speculate. But you know how they recorded the Beatles. Um, to me, actually, it's interesting because when I was like in, I don't know, how old exactly, but I remember thinking the Beatles were horrible when I was really young. And one of the reasons why, because I just kind of associated them wrongly with like, you know, whatever doo-wop and everything from the 60s. And I didn't like 50s and 60s and I didn't like that. And it wasn't until I learned and really like got into music that I appreciated who the Beatles were. And I think one of the things about the Beatles that maybe it's kind of like Steely Dan and I think XTC is that way. And there's a lot of bands that musicians just get it because it's it's like musicians playing for musicians a little bit. I don't know. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was, uh, do you remember Jethro Tull? That was the, the yeah. musician's yeah. band, wasn't it really? For me, it was, um, I got distracted by uh, this other U.S. artist based here in Los Angeles who went by the name Frank Zappa. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And that kind of distracted me from the Beatles for a really long time. I mean, I was obsessed with Zappa. I have like 50 CDs, um, you know, and so and I became a more Beatles, a more of an appreciator of Beatles in later years, you know, I just, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm probably somewhere between Robbo and Robert on that, you know, on the love of Beatles curve, but um, yeah, totally blown away with what they accomplished with the limited resources they had. I, I've, I've hit this point with the Beatles where I've listened to so much of it in college and everything that. I, I don't listen to them as much now because I've just... Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I overdosed on them and I went through a point where I just tried to learn everything. But it's almost like, you know, like some like someone you love. You don't need to, you know, they love you. You know, they're there. And you just take them <laughs> <Yeah>. for granted. <laughs> right. <laughs> She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, whatever. We should let Richard have but, a chat. Okay. This is Richard Lush. The 25th of June, 1967. 
A live broadcast with uh, probably the, one of the first words uttered, supposedly, which I've never actually heard. Roll tape, Richard. Is that correct? Probably. I think there's an Are You Ready, Richard, in there somewhere too. It was an extremely nervous moment in our lives, all our lives. Indeed. Well, the moment was uh, a live broadcast, a satellite broadcast of the Beatles' All You Need Is Love. Yes, yeah, we were all very, very nervous. There was a BBC van outside which was beaming the uh, satellite sound and pictures and we lost communication between the van just before we started recording. So George Martin was very um, sort of nervous. We had to literally, you know, just go and hope that it was happening out in the van somewhere. (laughs) But um, everybody was nervous. John was nervous. Well, all the Beatles were nervous. I think we all we were all very glad when it was over. Now that was uh, a place you ended up. The question is, how you got there in the beginning? Gosh, that was '67. I started in '65, about June, July '65. But before that, as a kid, what was your interest in music? Um, I used to play a guitar. And um, I had a few Shadows records, and I was quite interested in them. Um, Bruce Welsh lives lived uh, quite near us in Harrow, and I sort of seen him a couple of times. So there was a bit of an interest there. Apart from that, I mean, at, at school you were either a, a Beatles fan or a Stones fan. Everybody was Beatles, so I went Rolling Stones. I must admit, I did the same thing, but the interesting connection there, I've just realised, you're from Harrow. I I grew up in Chessant. Oh, right. And uh, my neighbour in Berry Green was Cliff Richard. Well, of course, Cliff was a Cheshant boy, yeah. Yeah, there you go. So it's, no, it's a small world. Yeah. But so they, like Cliff, before the, what, Drifters, who became the Shadows, came along. Yeah. He was in a skiffle band that was really big in in the late 50s in England. Right. Were you into skiffle? No, well, I quite like Lonnie Donegan, I must admit. He had a couple of records that were quite good, and obviously I think the Shadows were very influenced by by him. My sister's boyfriend at the time uh, liked sort of jazz. There was quite a big, you know, Chris Barber, Ackerbilt, these sort of people. There was quite a, a, a large following of jazz music. So, I mean, the early pop music, of course, in England was in fact... Um, Cliff, I guess. Yeah. Bill Haley started it all. Uh, Bill Haley, Gene Vincent. Because you worked on a Cliff Richard Records summer holiday, uh, I think. Yeah, I did, before I actually worked with the Beatles. So, yeah, and I've sort of continued to be kind of friends with them over the years. I saw them a couple of, couple of years, three years ago or something, when they came to Sydney Yeah. That, for that um, final tour. And uh, it's been a long journey. It has. It's, it's interesting, though, because it's one thing being like a fan of music or playing a guitar, but yeah. actually making a career out of it is a pretty big jump. So what inspired you to getting well, into the there was there was actually, well, we're going back to Cliff Richard again. There was actually a Shadows album, and on the back of, on the back of this album was a, sort of a write-up for the recording. And I thought, oh, that that would be interesting to actually work where they recorded it. I mean, this friend of mine had a tape recorder at the time and he used to record me playing guitar every now and then and fiddle around with tape machines. So I went along for an interview and uh, they didn't actually have a job at the time, but they uh, they were interviewing a few people and uh, then they uh, sent me a note letter about, oh, probably about two months, three months later 
and said, come for another interview, there might be a job for you. So two of us actually started on the same day. Peter Mew went on to do mastering and he only left Abbey Road last year. So he's been the longest surviving Abbey Road employee, which is... That's scary. Yeah. It is scary. <laughs> yes, it is scary. How many times he walked over the crossing, I've no idea, but quite a few. <laughs> yeah. Have you got yeah. a photograph, though? Yeah. Oh, probably not, knowing no. Peter. No. Um, maybe he does have somewhere, but um, no, but he's, you know, everybody was amazed that he lasted that long, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember your first day at Abbey Road? Uh, no. <laughs> no word. No, I don't remember. Uh, although I can remember, I mean, I started in the tape library. There was basically a, a, a room upstairs where all the tapes were kept, and that was kind of your first job. So I can remember vaguely sitting down with Peter, sort of learning, you just learn how to write out a tape box and all this kind of stuff, where all the tapes went, the difference between a, a four-track tape and a stereo tape and a mono tape. You know, we we did that for probably a couple of months. And then one, you know, you, you got to become a button pusher, as they called us back then. And button pusher involved what exactly? A button pusher depended on what the sessions were, uh, but you basically helped set up sessions. You were responsible for all the tape machines, which in sort of Beatles sessions you had, you know, sometimes two four-tracks, three stereo machines going, so you had quite a few things to do. On a classical session, you'd have two stereo machines, uh, maybe three stereo machines running. So that was quite involved if you had to change tape and they wanted to literally, you know, do another movement or whatever it was. You had to sort of whip the tapes off pretty quickly because they were very patient. And uh, so it was, you know, it's quite a lot of pressure. Um, later on on the Beatles stuff, of course, you were in charge of sort of tape flanging and phasing and sometimes editing. So, yeah, it was kind of, you know, quite involved. It wasn't just a question of sitting in front of a tape machine and pressing record. It was, you know, and you were sort of involved with decisions and, you know, you'd say you like something and, you know, they'd say no and then they'd say, oh, maybe not, you know, maybe Richard's right. On Beatles stuff, it was them, George, Jeff and I, throwing our two bobs within. Yeah. Because as a tape op, which for people who don't know, um, you're the guy that had to uh, drop, you know, drop in to record oh, and drop gotcha. out. Yeah, yeah, dropping in, dropping out. I mean, even later on in life, I did the music for the Olympics, recorded the music for the Olympics in Sydney. And that was all done on Fairlight. And then at the last minute, they decided to um, extend a piece of music for the flags when the flags came in the uh, stadium. So we had to get the orchestra back in and record it, and the Fairlights had all gone out to Homebush. So the only thing we could record it on was a was a 48-track machine, Sony digital machine. And uh, all the sort of tape-op stroke Pro Tools operators were all sort of scared of this machine. <laughs> and uh, so I was dropping in live a 60-piece orchestra on this 11-minute piece of music, and it sort of took me back to sort of back then, you know, when the pressure was sort of really on. I mean, now you can record on Pro Tools and if you miss the beginning, it's still there and, you know, you can get away with murder. 
Yeah, yeah. If, if you've just got one reel of tape, it's, um, I mean, when I think back on it now, we used to, you know, just put the tape in the box and then go home. Whereas now the assistants are there for hours doing backups and this and that. Is there any clangers you did when you were dropping in and out? Um, probably. There's, I mean, there was there was some vocals I I wiped once on a song. I can't remember which one it was now. But uh, these things happen and, you know, I can't remember anybody getting really upset by it. But you certainly learn by your mistakes. I mean, you then check everything. I used to check everything before we dropped in. And if they said, oh, we're going to drop in on the second verse, I used to make sure that, you know, I was in the first chorus and all that sort of thing. So you just check things, which which I think is very important for any sort of kids out there, you know. Yeah, double-check everything. Never trust technology and double-check everything, you know. But you were working in those days, of course, with live drums, which meant you were at the mercy of the drummer keeping time. Well, that's right. And, I mean, as it turns out, uh, Ringo was pretty good. Um, I mean, I I saw an interview with Giles Martin and he was saying when he did the uh, Cirque du Soleil, um, he was editing between takes and they would the tempo would be exactly the same, you know, whereas whereas a lot of drummers speed up, and especially in choruses, they speed up a little bit and then slow down and speed up, which is all part of live recording. But, um, I mean, we had no clicks in those days. We just basically went for it, you know. Well, because the, the first click is actually a metronome, so, <laughs> you know. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, we had a little metronome, but I think maybe maybe Ringo had one of those going by the side of his drums sometimes, but, I mean, he certainly wasn't sort of following it religiously. He's just a natural drummer that can play in time for quite a period of time, you know. Yeah. Do you remember the first Beatles track he worked on? It was something on um, mixing and fiddling around with mixing on Rubber Soul, and then I think the first actual recording live stuff was done on uh, Revolver. Well, they're my two favourite Beatles records, I have to say. Yeah. Well, Rubber Soul came out literally just as I got to Abbey Road. I think the act- the record was all recorded, but Norman Smith and George Martin were fiddling around editing and mixing and that kind of stuff. So that they were working on that when, when I started work there anyway. Yeah. What were the Beatles like to work with? Um, on a good day, great. Yeah. On a bad day, bad. like most people but um they were pretty good i mean late later on like on the white album they got a bit sort of tetchy i think any band i mean any band that had been together for a period of time and gone through what they'd gone through they were all into different music by then you know george had his indian thing going you know john had met yoko he wanted to do avant-garde sort of stuff so it was kind of hard times, but they sort of persevered through and, um, you know, came out with Abbey Road, which, although it's a great album, I think there were very few occasions when they were actually all there at the same time on that album. It was all done in bits and pieces. I mean, by then, they'd probably 64 or 5, So they'd been recording for three years by then. I mean, the difference with, I mean, John was very impatient. He wanted to do it very quickly and not sort of spend a lot of time doing things, whereas the other guys were the opposite, I guess one would say. Yeah. Um, Paul was very fastidious and wanted, you know, would do vocals and George would do guitars over and over and over again until he was happy and 
So, but John, John was the impatient one. So, I mean, they were great as a group. And they were fabulous. I mean, there were great sessions amongst the debris. So what was the normal routine of a day if you were going in to uh, do a session? Uh, normal routine? Well, if you were starting a song, whoever wrote the song would sort of play it to everybody, play it to George Martin on guitar or piano. Um, and then if it was John or Paul or John or Paul's song, they'd explain what they were trying to get out of it and then we, they'd sort of decide what instruments, who was going to play what. Normally, nine times out of ten, whoever sang it wrote most of it. So um, a song like Julia, for instance, was a John song, and Let It Be was a Paul song. Yeah. But in amongst all of that could well be some lyrics that John would write or change. They yeah. changed the lyrics along the way. So what about the setup of the studio, though? What was the, what was the crew? Beatles had two roadies, Mal and Neil, who set all the amps up, and there'd be drums with the little screens round. Towards the end, bass was quite often done last of all, funnily enough. I mean, Paul would quite often play piano and do a rough vocal. Um, so quite often it wasn't bass, drums, guitar. It would actually be sort of piano, guitar, two guitars, piano and drums. Sort of sounds weird to imagine now, but that's kind of how we did it. Their early albums was just all done live, and then they might overdub a tambourine or a guitar solo or something like that. Um, so that was done very quick. I mean, their first album was done in a day, so which is a, <laughs> quite amazing when you think of it now, isn't it? Well, it is now. I mean, now they can't even get the bloody counting done in a day, let alone no, it's. A different world. It is. It's funny because I was talking to the guy I mentioned the other day, Chris Dickey, who's a mate of mine who worked yeah. at Rack, and um, he, he one of his comments was that he felt that uh, Pro Tools has made everybody defer making a decision. Exactly. I mean, I mean, dis- decision making actually pushes, actually moves you along, pushes you along, puts pressure on getting it right, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Actually, I just hate this deciding down the track, you know, it's just silly. It should be decided there and then, okay, we're moving on now. Like writing a book and sort of doing it all out of order and just writing a whole lot of pages and then trying to sort it out. I mean, you've got to kind of, you know, figure it out beforehand. There's got to be a bit of a plan, but that's kind of how things are done now. It's very frustrating. I mean, I, I can't work like that. It drives me crazy. Yeah. But it's funny, you know, because that that is the world now. That is the world, uh, apart from a few people. I think Nashville is one place where they actually get a whole rhythm section in together and they can all play together. I mean, there's a few artists that do that. So it's only old geezers and um, maybe the the White Stripes. There's a few few kind of bands around that like to record live. Uh, but it's, I mean, it's all a part of a performance, you know. I mean, I thought it funny. I was watching the um, Eurovision Song Contest the other week, and how many of those singers just couldn't sing? They were so out of tune. And it just goes to show you how how Pro Tools is sort of, you know, you want to make a record? Oh, you can't sing. It doesn't matter. We can fix it for you. Whereas back then, if you couldn't sing, you didn't make a record. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it was all done live. I mean, everything at Abbey Road, definitely sort of 65, six, well, 64, 65, 66 started to get into four track. 
but uh, everything was a performance, you know, and it was a singer with an orchestra, it was a singer with the band singing live. The Hollies would do records singing live. Graham or uh, Alan would sing live with the band and then they do harmonies, guitar solo, and then that was done, you know. They were they were very good vocals. Vocal yeah, group, good vocals. They blend. I mean, I mean, they particularly were a great blend of people. But there was a bit of excitement on the record, and, and and that's kind of what's missing now. Everything's so sort of calculated that there's just no excitement. You know, yeah. it's always hard to get excitement when you've got a, you know, a click track going, and there's not a whole lot of people performing and working off each other. You know, which what all those records were. Well, the the other thing is a lot of people work remotely as well now, so you get some well, that's like, right. yeah, doing something one even another country. Yeah, oh, totally. I mean, I mean, the last Cliff and the Shadows album, I think Hank was here. He did his guitars here. Uh, Bruce and Brian did the tracks in England, uh, and Cliff sang it in America. Yeah, it was kind of done all over the place. And when you hear it, it kind of sounds a bit like that. You know, it's not got the vibe that they once, that they would get in the studio. And, and, and you could never recreate that. That's why live concerts, if the singer can sing, are so good to go and see, you know. There was a job posted at Abbey Road for uh, someone to head to Australia and uh, you put your hand up for it. Yeah, I didn't initially. I didn't initially. I just, I, I, I mean, we all thought it was really funny. You know, we thought, oh my God, he'd go there. I mean, at the time, I'd worked with quite a few... Well, Cliff's manager, for a start, was Australian. There was a few musicians that were in England at the time that were Australian. So I had, you know, worked with quite a few people from Sydney and Melbourne. And um, I think I decided... Mum thought it would be a good idea. I thought maybe oh, it'd be a change. It was only for two years. So I thought, oh, that'll go pretty quickly. So... To the sun I came. Yes, indeed. And that, that was to set up EMI Studios in Sydney, is that...? EMI in Sydney, yeah. I had a kind of a two-year contract with them and a um, bit right. of a shock when I first got here and realised you had to engineer and work the tape machine yourself, but that was life. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to go back to being a tape op again. I thought, oh, gosh, spent the last however many years, three years being an engineer, and now I'm back being a tape op. But um, you kind of did both. So what was the studio like in comparison with um, Abbey Road? It was pretty good. I mean, they just got delivery of a new console. It wasn't as big as the console we had at Abbey Road, but it was okay. There was a kind of a dodgy console in one of the studios and a, and a, a new console in, in the main studio or the, the big studio at EMI. So uh, I did a lot of my stuff there. And we had uh, sixteen track studio, which was good. Yeah, it was it was uh, a pretty good situation. They had some quite good mics. There again, not as many, and the choice wasn't as good as at Abbey Road, but we sort of got by. I worked with some interesting people. I sort of did some stuff with George and Harry from the Easy Beats. Was one of the first things I did. And, um, I mean, the sounds were different. I remember the snare, particularly the snare. You, there was a session drummer at the time that always used to say, oh, I love that snare sound, that European snare sound, Richard. Can you get that? You know, and he had a snare that was tuned so high that, you know, you and I, I said, well, you're going to have to tune that down a couple of octaves to get that sound. Oh, I can't do that. So, well, you won't get the deep sound. It's not a bloody miracle. You know, I'm not a miracle worker. 
and uh, he sort of didn't quite understand that you had to tune it down to get a deep sound. So I guess the Aussie drum sound had a kind of unique sound. That was the one thing I did notice. It's also a budget thing as well, because you can, you know, obviously... I guess so. I mean, yeah, I mean, here records were made a lot quicker than what they were at the time in England. I mean, at the time in Abbey Road, one would spend maybe three weeks or a month doing records, whereas here, when I initially came, it was kind of like going back a little way in time as far as speed and everything. But, you know, it wasn't archaic by any means, but it wasn't quite the cutting edge of Abbey Road. Yeah. Well, you had one huge success, which was um, Sherbet. How's that? Which became a, a top ten in England yes. and number one here. Yes. That actually took quite a while to do. I mean, that took about a couple of months. I mean, I probably spent more time on that than any album I'd done here, full stop. I mean, fortunately, it had some great songs on it, so it was just as well we did, you know. 2007, you did uh, the new version of Sergeant Peppers with uh, yes, a bunch of people. Yes, yeah, I've sort of been, I've, I went back and had a really fun time doing that. And unfortunately, it never came out as a record, which was a drag. I mean, it was originally going to be just a radio program. So that's that was the original idea. And then somebody said, oh, we should really film it because, you know, you never know what's going to happen. So they started to film it. Then the BBC sort of said, no, you, you're not having any more money. So we kind of finished the radio program and some artists didn't get filmed and then they were trying to get a record deal and uh, it just all became too hard. So unfortunately, a lot of it sort of it ended up being a bit of an underground album. Yeah. But it was we really had fun doing it, a lot of fun doing it. You got any good stories from that those sessions? Oh, gosh. Where do you start? <laughs> exactly. Where do you start? Well, it was quite funny. One of the bands, and I can't remember which band, but they they thought they were doing the opening to Pepper, the, the, the first thing on Pepper, but they were doing the reprise, and they sort of came in and they'd learnt that. And they were terrific in the end. I mean, they didn't sort of spit the dummy or anything. They came over to me and I said, oh, no, we did that yesterday. <laughs> We did that yesterday with Brian Adams. Uh, no, you're you're doing the reprise. Oh, well, they told us we were doing the the opening. That's what we've learned. I said, well, you better go and get a CD and learn the. <laughs> so they were very cool. They were very cool about it. And uh, now you also worked with Oasis on that, who have always made claim that. <laughs> yeah, well, that, well, that was that was interesting. Because <laughs> <laughs> they they're almost like you know, complete Beatles cover band. Well, that was very interesting, and, and one of my regrets in life is goes with that story. But um, they they basically wanted to record at Abbey Road with the same console that it would have been done on originally. Well, the only person that's got one in England is Mark Knopfler. He didn't want to hire it out because that's in his studio. Lenny Kravitz has got one in New York. So 50,000 phone calls went on and basically his engineer came over with this console at great expense to the management. And we set it up at Abbey Road and off we went. I mean, it was done very quickly. The track was done very quickly. And the two brothers never spoke. And it was very strange. But anyway. Wow. Oh, well, Noel did. Noel just, Noel kind of produced it, I guess. But it was great. And then at the end of it, 
we all had a beer and sort of talked about this and that. And I was going out with a friend of mine and they said, oh, do you want to come to the pub for a few drinks? I didn't go, unfortunately, because I, I think it would have been quite funny. Yeah. And uh, I spoke to the doorman uh, the day after and he said, oh, they came back about nine o'clock and just played in the studio Beatles songs for about an hour and a half and then went home. I'm sorry I missed it all. But yeah, anyway, it would have been good to have rolled the tape over. Yeah, that's right. But that's that's life. Yeah, because I saw a photograph, and I don't know whether it was from that period or not, but it was sent to me by a mutual acquaintance of ours. Right. And it's a photograph of Paul Weller and Noel Gallagher. Yeah, Paul was there. Yeah, Paul came in. Yeah, and they were standing there looking over, and it was Jeff Emmerich was there, and I, yeah. I'm just wondering if that was you in that photo as well. We were all there somewhere. Yeah. But Paul came in, yeah, Paul came in to listen to stuff with his daughter, I think. And, um, yeah, no, it was a fun day. And it was done very quickly. I think Noel turned around and said, oh, I told the wife I'd be home about half past nine, but it's only seven o'clock. What am I going to do? <laughs> so that's when they decided to go and have a drink and then, you know, make it a bit of a normal session. So yeah. they probably got home about midnight. So what's your best memory or best story of working at Abbey Road? Well, I guess the most satisfaction was probably that, the, the night of All You Need Is Love, I guess. I mean, there was two, two big sessions. One was that and one was Day in the Life, the orchestra for that, and they were both done in the same studio. Those were kind of the most memorable sessions, I guess, because they were sort of so unusual. And uh, and there was a lot of pressure, and it was all done live, and it was very re rewarding, I guess. I mean, it was rewarding knowing that there was, you know, there was like a hundred million people listening, but there was a lot of pressure doing it, you know. And there's probably other things that I'll think about once we finish. Yes, you will. <laughs> if you had a choice, you wind the clock back, and someone said you can work at Capitol Records recording Frank Sinatra. Ooh. Or yeah. the Beatles, what would you pick? God. Well, I guess you'd pick the one you didn't do. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would love to have been. I mean, I've, I've got a Sinatra little box set that I just bought, and then looking at the pictures of that. And I've been to Capitol and walked down the corridor and been to the studios. So it's kind of the same as, as, as Abbey Road. People that go to Abbey Road and walk down the corridor and see the pictures go, wow, you know, that was done here, and wow. The same thing is at Capitol, you know, they got Nat King Cole, Dean Martin, Frank, Beach Boys, say no more. I mean, it's uh, it's sort of interesting that each country had one studio where m most of the stuff from the 60s was recorded. Yeah, it's true, isn't it? That's quite bizarre when you think about it now. Yeah, it's, I mean, basically Capitol did all of Nat King Cole's stuff, did nearly all of the Sinatra stuff. Some of it was done at a place called United Sound or United Recorders. But most of the stuff was done at Capitol. They're both institutions, and they're still going, which is amazing. Yeah. I remember touch, it, there was a, yeah, it was a Joe Jackson record done years and years ago. Yes. At, uh, that was at Radio City, but he recorded it live, as they would have done, so staggering up yeah, the band. Yeah, that was done in New York. I yeah. Think. Yeah. Yeah. But it was a different way of recording because the louder the instrument, the further back away from the microphone. Yeah. Well, that's it. I mean, I did a film once and somebody said, oh, I just want to record it on one mic. Just want to record it in mono. It's just for a, 
soundtrack. You know, it was only a sort of a short film, 11 minutes of music. And we kind of did it like that. And it was sort of interesting where you put the mic and what you picked up on it. I think we ended up having the mic a couple of feet from the piano and we had the sort of brass and woodwinds kind of sitting in a semicircle, pretty much like how you would at Capitol. The only thing you didn't pick up that great was the bass. And I think I actually cheated and said, look, we've got acoustic bass, can I just put a mic in that corner? And um, so it was actually done on two mics. But looking at the old photographs of Sinatra working with the orchestra at Capitol, it's quite amazing. Well, he insisted on being in the room, not being in a booth. And when they came back, Al Schmidt told me when they came back to do the duets album, he said, I want to do it like we did it back then. I want to stand in the room, you know. And Al said, well, there'll be all this spill and everything. And, and Frank said, sorry, I've got to be in the room, you know. And no headphones, nothing. You just hear, hear the orchestra as it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. I Fantastic. love it. Okay, before we end, there's obviously one question I'm sure everybody that knows anything about the Beatles wants to know the answer to, and it's two people's names. One's, you Gosh. know, held in glory and one is far from that, and that's George Martin and Yoko Ono. Yeah. Have you got... <laughs> these are two people that... Uh, well, one, of course, is Yoko that everybody you know, accuses of breaking up the Beatles. No, she was, I mean, she was, I, I found her okay to work. I mean, I did the first John Lennon album, the solo album, and Yoko kind of spent most of the time in the control room with or without Phil Spector. So it was kind of an interesting combination. And um, I found her all right. I mean, she had some crazy ideas and, you know, sometimes she'd be just told to be quiet and off we went. And, uh, but I mean, I never found her a, a distraction in the studio. But in saying that, girlfriends came to sessions, n not all the time, whereas she wouldn't let John go anywhere. She would follow him, you know. He'd go to the toilet, she would come up the stairs and sit outside, you know. It was a strange sight. Wow. But um, then he'd come out and they both got back, go back down again. So, the, so they were kind of inseparable. And that, I guess, because you've been in a band together for that period of time and it's you and basically the only other people were the roadies and us, that somebody else coming in was a bit upsetting for them. Yeah. So I wouldn't go as far as to say she broke the Beatles up, but she caused a little bit of, you know, tension there that probably wouldn't have been there had she not been. Yeah. And the other person is who is called the fifth Beatle is George Martin. Uncle George, we used to call him. <laughs> He's so old. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing hindsight. You know, we look back now. I mean, I was 18, Jeff was 21, George was 38, McCartney was 25, I think, 25. I mean, it's sort of frightening. Even the Beatles thought he was sort of so old. And he was 38. Now his son's older than him, older than he was. I mean, it's very weird. Yeah. But, um, I mean, a lot of the records wouldn't, wouldn't have ended up as they did without George's influence. I mean, he was, he was a great help. 
doing harmonies, coming up with ideas, doing stuff, you know, half-speed piano, all these various things we did. But he was a bit of a, you know, I did everything. That was the only shame about it all, mm. is that he didn't sort of share a lot of the credit along the way. And Jeff and I kind of feel the same thing about that. Uh, but anyway, that's um, that's the way it has gone. So you don't have anything to do with any of them? Oh, no, no, I saw him. I mean, we had a, there was a 75th party at Abbey Road and... Um, Jeff didn't go, but I, I went from here. Martin Benj, who used to work at Abbey Road too, used to manage Abbey Road. We both went over and they had this amazing party in number one, All You Need Is Love Was Done. I thought, oh, there's going to be a whole lot of sort of dropkick singers and bands and whatever. And it was just basically for staff and it was terrific. Oh. And there was engineers that I hadn't seen. Norman Smith was there. He didn't rec- He didn't recognise me, he didn't recall me at all which is very strange he, he passed away about a year after there was a whole lot of engineers i hadn't seen and the only people that were there other than engineers were uh george martin and yoko and giles and george's wife so so we had a bit of a chat and he blamed me for uh, being deaf he reckons it was my fault <laughs> and, uh, I don't know where you get that idea from because uh, you were sitting by the volume pot. You were nearer to the volume pot than I was. You know, I don't quite see the reasoning there. <laughs> yes. And uh, so no, no it, it was good. And so that was the last time I saw him. But it was, uh, it was, it was a good night. So you have great memories of the Beatles. I do have good memories. Yeah, yeah. And do you do you see them the way a lot of people see them? Historically, that as as big as they they are and as influential as they, they yes are. yes I do because I can remember when we finished Pepper. I mean, everybody that worked on it, everybody that had anything to do on it with anything, and that's the Beatles and well, I guess the five other four other people, whatever it is, one two five other people that worked on it, apart from the technical people, mustn't left leave them out. Uh, we're all very proud of it when it was finished and we all couldn't wait for people to hear it, you know, because we spent so long doing it, spent like three months or something doing this record or even longer than that. It went on and on and on. It was good to get it released and see the reaction to it. All these years later, people still, you know, go, wow, how did you do that? Because we had to make decisions. Yes, exactly. <laughs> We had to make decisions. I mean, that's it, you know. I get tape ops now or Pro Tools operators now that ask me, you know, do you want to keep that? I said, no. I didn't want to keep it. We wouldn't be redoing it, you know. But they keep hundreds of these bad takes, which is a total waste of time. Yeah. You've just got to get one good one. I mean, I know you do depend on the singer, but you have to coax that out of the singer, you know. And fixing up a, a load of bad takes isn't my idea of making a record, you know. But that seems to be the way now. Indeed. Now, I've, this is a really random question to finish off. Have you ever worked on a voiceover session? I have, yes. You know, when I was, I worked at Songzoo, I worked with them for about, oh gosh, probably about five years. And um, we had a music studio and a voiceover studio. I, I, I worked in the music studio, but Every now and then, I'd um, have to do voiceovers, and 
I didn't particularly enjoy doing them. But um, that's not the answer we were looking for. <laughs> but, but then, but then in the end, well, I mean, I, I was a music man, so yeah. you know. And I, I, I can remember when I first came to EMI, Bill Ramsey, the manager of the studio, sort of took me around and and showed me their voiceover studio, and he said, "Oh, you'll never be in here, Richard. Don't, don't even think about it." Well, about three weeks later, I was in there doing a voiceover, you know trying to fly in vinyl, you know. Yep. It's like a nightmare. I mean, it's easier doing a 50-piece orchestra than doing a, a voiceover flying in, you know, duck and cow effects over a bloke talking, you know. But <laughs> yes. uh, but people people that do voiceovers do it standing on the on the head, you know. I mean, I mean when I say I don't like doing voiceovers, it's not my cup of tea, but on hearing stuff that's on television now, I, I sort of wonder where they've what's going on there. I mean, some of the voiceovers I hear on station IDs, the the balance and the sound of the voiceover sounds shocking. So I, I don't know what mics they're using. It's kind of the same as a singer, really. I mean, the voice is king. You know, he's the most important thing, and everything else has got to sit with it. And sometimes, you know, you have to EQ it a bit differently, or or get a different voice, you know, if you've got this huge track and they they hire some sort of Nancy boy to do the voiceover, you know, it's never going to work. Yeah. It's, the, it's the same in music, you know, if you've got a little nylon guitar playing over ACDC, it's never going to cut through. So it's kind of everything, everything's, the audio's the same, it's sort of matching everything up and what works and what doesn't work. And I think there's a lot of voiceover stuff now that I hear that sort of disturbs me a bit on television. And it's kind of a different, it's a different mindset, you know. And sometimes I'd actually mix a final cocade or something like that that I'd done the music for. And somebody else would record the voiceover, but then it would come to me for, for mixing. And you'd have to keep writing it, you know, writing the voice, because the only other thing to do is to keep pulling the music down. You know, which isn't isn't the object. Yeah, you sort of hear stuff on air now. You think, "Whoa, who's done this?" It is. It is hard. It's hard to do. Yeah. So, if you had one vocal microphone, only one you could have, and this is going to be the last question, I promise. If there was Gosh. one vocal microphone, what would it be? Forty-seven. Nice. Or a sixty-seven. <laughs> uh, I've, I've got a favourite sixty-seven in Sydney that I use at three hundred one that I use on singers, and it sounds great. But a forty-seven is is I, I did a I hadn't used one for about twenty years, and I used one on some shocking ad with, with a girl singer on it, and I just looked at the VU meter when I put this mic out. And it didn't really need limiting, didn't need compressing. The whole vocal sat there within a 3 dB dynamic range. And I thought, wow, this mic is the business, you know. Yeah. And I just put a little bit of limiting on it, a little bit of compression. and uh, But it sounded so loud, which is the thing with microphones. You know, you can put four microphones on a singer and you put them all to zero, but the 47 will jump out of the speaker and you'll, consequently, you can have so much more music behind it with a good mic than uh, than if you'd used, say, a 
57 or something, you just wouldn't get the volume on the voice. Mm. So the, the 47 is brilliant. So anybody listening, start saving up your pennies. Saving up your pennies. Even a FET 47 is pretty nice to have. And I think they're, I mean, they're making all these again, but they're not quite the same as the originals. Yeah. Got a little bit of distortion on it, which is all part of the sound, I think. Which would be good for a singer, but probably not so good for a voiceover. Yeah, I think, yeah, it is, but it's it just gives you a lot of volume. Yeah. Put it to zero on a VU meter, not a peak meter, and uh, it just looks so better on a VU meter than a lot of other things. are all peaky in various frequencies, but the 47 just looks great. Yeah. Sounds great and looks great. Richard Lush, it's been a pleasure, and... Um I hope we talk again very soon. Okay. So I sat down the other day uh, and I had 20 minutes to kill before I had to do uh, a, a remote voice session and I was flicking through the internet and I watched um, a Waves tutorial on the um, Abbey Road reverb chamber. They've got a plug-in where they've, they've modelled the, the reverb chambers. Part of the video was actually showing the reverb chambers and all that sort of stuff. And for someone who sort of didn't never worked in that era but had an idea of reverb chambers and blah 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 to actually see it for the first time it's quite incredible going back to what we were talking about the show about the sounds they pulled when you think that really the reverb chamber was just a speaker stuck in a tiled room and moving the microphone backwards and forwards to uh to get those different sounds it's pretty incredible really absolutely yeah and, and studios were known for their chambers. Uh, mm. I think uh, Bear Tracks, Bear Tracks in New York, had a barn silo that was one of their reverb chambers. I wonder who sat and scratched their head and went, "Let's tile a room, stick a speaker in it." Someone who went to the bathroom during a session, yeah, and uh, was sitting on the loo and went, "I've got a really good idea." Like who? I want to know who who first taped a microphone to a wall behind the drum kit and went, "Let's record that." You know, that's. That's pretty clever stuff. Drug use. Lots yeah. of drugs. Yeah, I don't know. I, I recorded a band. I remember one time I recorded a band and the um the the studio had like one of those lobbies that was, you know, had marble floors and everything. And the drummer was practicing and I walked through the lobby when he was practicing and he was so damn loud, even though he was in a soundproof room, it didn't matter. He was just like filling this lobby up. And I remember going, wow, that's really cool. And sometimes like when you're recording things, you're just like, with the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I don't know if I'm going to use it, but stick a microphone there. And we did, and we ended up using it. And it was like this like slappy, like crazy reverb. And sometimes you're just looking for unique sounds. And if you're one of those people that like every time you hear something, you're like, did you hear that? Oh, look at that. Oh, wow. Look at the sound this thing makes. Yeah. So yeah, maybe yeah, that's yeah. how it happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that'd be fun. Well, it was the whole thing at Abbey Road that changed the way that drums were recorded. So um, mm. there you go. See someone who compression almost got no moving the uh, moving the mic closer to the uh, kick drum. That was a fireable offence at uh, EMI Abbey Road. 
uh, luckily they didn't get fired. And now it's standard yeah, thank kit. Thank God they yeah, did yeah. it. That's yeah. right. Because exactly. that was just considered too direct or too possibly damaging the microphone, right? Damage the diaphragm. Don't right, put it right, too right, close. Right. Don't break the microphone. Yeah. There, there's a story of Jeff Emmerich, I think, talking about how when they when they wanted to use the Fairchild and they had to like get permission for it and these guys with like, you know, white coats roll the Fairchild in on a cart and they're like, okay, what are you using this for? And of course they're using it for like drum compression and that's how you get that crazy long sustain on the cymbals in um in Sgt. Pepper, you know, like at the end of Day in a Life and stuff like that. And um but yeah, they were using things for not necessarily how maybe not how they were designed, but how people perceived they were supposed to be used. And that was all the creative use of compression where that started. Mm. Well, you're telling me about rolling in the machine. Talking about rolling in the machine, it makes me think of another British hitter hit artist. Monty Python, bring in the machine that goes bing, <laughs> and also bring in the most expensive machine. Uh, <laughs> bing, <That's right. laughs> indeed. Ah, uh, yes. All right. Well, uh, there goes another one. We should uh, wish you all seasons greetings. Absolutely. And, uh, may Santa deliver some wonderful gear under your tree and stay safe. Stax headphones. Oh, yes. Oh, <laughs> Hello, Mister Stax, if you're listening. Yep, Sydney, Australia. Yes. Thank you. Look, I, I'm, I'm, I don't care. I'll, I'll even go the Paluso P414. Nice. That wouldn't be so bad. That'd be, That'd be nice. Yeah. Lovely. Or a U67. Anyway, on that note, see ya. Bye. That was the Pro Audio Suite. If you have any questions or ideas for a show, let us know via our Facebook, the Pro Audio Suite Podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.